Babylon Berlin, die neue Staffel. Seid ihr bereit für den Sturm? Auf Unrecht folgt Recht. Auf Barbarei folgt Ordnung. Auf Schwäche folgt Stärke. Auf die neue Zeit! Nichts bleibt, wie es ist. Babylon Berlin, Staffel 4, ab 7. Oktober, exklusiv auf Sky. You are with Cape Talk. Views and News with Clarence Ford. Yeah, that's where you at, and we've got the naked scientist on the line with us. Uh, Dr. Chris Smith, of course, Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge. Uh, it's really good to have you with us, Doc. Uh, I'm looking forward to these interactions on a, on a regular basis, because I've got plenty of questions as well. Oh, good. Excellent. What is your first one? Why am I seeing 11-11 all the time? 11-11? Like, yeah. Why are you saying it? Why am I seeing it? I'm just, when I look at my clock, it's 11-11. Well, that's true. I don't know. I mean, the, the thing that you have to remember about the way our brains work is that we are designed or we have evolved to spot patterns in things. It's how we're so successful, because okay. if we actually go around recognizing cause and effect, it means you're less likely to stumble into the same mistake twice and you're more likely to stumble <laughs> into the same happenstance, good things happening again. So our brains are programmed to spot those patterns. But sometimes they lead us astray and we end up attaching significance to a coincidence because we notice when patterns crop up and so we say this happens all the time but what we're actually doing is paying attention to the thing that gets our attention more for various reasons perhaps it's the same number repeated for example and we disregard the millions of other times that other numbers came up because they didn't tickle our fancy in the same way so it's probably in this case an example of attaching significance to a coincidence I was I was hoping there was some kind of mystical, magical kind of kind of reason why I'm encountering uh, it in that particular sequence. Uh, what I also wanted to ask you was about the Fibonacci sequence, the golden ratio. Why is it ever present in nature and, and the universe? Tell, tell us about I have absolutely that no idea, number. but our listeners might. So if there's any bright mathematicians who can tell us why these numbers matter, then do please put me out of my misery, because while I do like science, I'm not so strong at maths. Um, as in, I've got qualifications in maths and I'm all right at it, but I'm not on the level of the person who I sit and have lunch with who's a proper Cambridge mathematician. So there will be people like that listening. So please do, if anyone can share their wisdom on these numbers, let us know. Please. Now let's go to a voice note for the Naked Scientist. Good morning. Uh, my question for Dr. Christopher, the Naked Scientist, is why is it so easy to pick up a bad habit and so difficult to let go of it. I can think of a few simple examples. Uh, somebody who bites their nails uh, using swear words. It's so easy to pick up a bad habit, but so difficult to let it go. Why? Well, a range of things going on here, aren't there? If it's a bad habit that's an addictive thing, and smoking's addictive, for example, really good example, it's something that many people fall into because it's got very low barrier to entry. Accessibility of the product, tobacco, it's socially acceptable in many settings, it's comforting to some, it tends to go along with an environment that's receptive, friendly, social, and so people quite quickly instate that behaviour. And because it has so many positives attached to a negative thing, it's quite easy to get into it, but because it's also reprogramming your brain, 
you're then becoming hooked on it. And then it becomes very hard to break out of because A, you've got all the attractive bits that we just mentioned, but then you've got the negative physical addictive symptoms that keep you hooked on it. So that's one example of of one kind of habit. But away from chemicals that are addictive, behaviours are also catching because as we were saying at the top of the programme, us humans have evolved in order to spot patterns in things and to emulate them or copy them or avoid them as dictated by the environment. And that's to make us successful. The reason we are so successful is because we're a social species. How do we operate? Well, we exchange information between ourselves, we copy each other, we fit in with the crowd. How do we do that? Because we watch what goes on and then we emulate that behaviour. So we tend to behave how others behave. And as a result, we're very easy to learn from, we're very good at teaching, but we, we do absorb information quickly and then we entrench that information and that behaviour to fit into the social group and the same approach can get us hooked on various behaviors or doing things a certain way and as i say you can't teach an old dog new tricks these become ingrained behaviors that we then have to quite forcibly educate ourselves not to repeat uh we have janus on the line from a fishhook a question for the naked scientist go ahead janus hi hi two good morning for two of two of you and this is I question my question, what is the policies of New World Order and Fourth Industrial Revolution? What's going on? What's going to happen? And how far we are in this progress? Thank you very much. Whoa, that's a loaded question. Well, the, 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 the fourth industrial revolution, if we think what, you know, what was, what were the original industrial revolutions? Well, the industrial revolution was the steam engine, wasn't it? Victorian inventors and people who came before them who really harnessed the power of energy locked up in fuels and used it to turn it into useful mechanical work that could do the work of many people. And in that way, you could massively upscale productivity. You could make things, you could move people around and so on. Then we ended up in an an industrial revolution that was a technological one. We've got computers and everyone told us and they sold us this lie that these things are going to make our lives so easy and we're going to have loads of free time because there'll be computers whirring away doing all this relentless boring stuff we don't want to. Actually, the equation has been reversed and we've become their slaves, haven't we? And we just do what the computer says and the computer decides whether or not we do anything. Now we're into another sort of industrial revolution, the informational revolution, where we have enormous amounts of information and distribution of information at our fingertips. The amount of information flowing through the internet now is going up exponentially. And it means that a person pretty much anywhere on earth, equipped with the right device, has access to almost all of the knowledge that mankind has ever generated and we've generated more information more data more knowledge in the last about 10 years than we have in all of the years that we have been on earth and that's really saying something the rate of information production distribution and dissemination is accelerating all the time so where is this all heading well we have to really solve the problem now of what we do with all this data the square kilometer array which is being assembled in southern africa a massive part of it in south africa is going to generate more information and more data in a day than the entire world generates in a year and we're going to have to do something about how we marshal that information share it spread it store it and so on so these new revolutions these industrial revolutions are informational and digital and they are really taxing the finest minds we have but they also are unlocking the door to enormous riches in terms of intellectual riches uh naked scientist question dr chris smith is it true that island don't have any snakes if true why not well new zealand doesn't have any snakes for a start and the the reason for this is purely the movement of those land masses and where they came from 
Animals are inherited into landmasses based on where those landmasses came from and who they were previously joined up to. And if we wound the clock back a couple hundred million years, you would find that almost all of the landmasses on Earth were all locked together into one giant supercontinent. Mm. We, we called it things like Pangaea and Gondwana land and so on. Mm-hmm. Because of the movement of tectonic plates, those landmasses were pulled apart, but they took with them the flora and fauna that were on them at the time. But they're not the only sources of landmasses. Some islands and some things popped into existence independently since that time. And this is because as well as moving around continental plates through the process of plate tectonics, you also have volcanoes which are generating new land from the ocean floor. And so the Galapagos Islands, for example, are a special environment where you've made a new island, you've created a new landmass, and unless you populate it with sets of animals then what's there already has to either come in by air, come in by sea, or be brought in by person or another animal. And there are examples of of snails being moved around the earth by by flying birds, actually, believe it or not. There is a set of islands in the Atlantic called the Tristan de Kuna Islands, which have Mm -hmm. snails living on them, which are genetically identical to snails that live in, say, Germany. And scientists could not understand how you'd end up with something thousands of kilometres apart that would have the same genetics, and then they realised that birds that migrate from Europe down to the Atlantic Islands, thousands of kilometres away take snails that crawl onto them when they go for a drink and they stick to the bird's plumage, hitch a free ride and they land on these islands. But New Zealand doesn't have any snakes because it's volcanic. It popped up since the time of volcanoes uh, making it and after it had split away from other places. So that doesn't have any snakes. The island of Ireland, I think it may have um, slow worms and things, but I don't think it actually has any snakes. Uh, We'll take a call. Gary from Franschuk for The Naked Scientist. Hi, morning, Terence. Morning, Doc. I did ask Walid, he tried to explain, but um, I just want to quick, I know, like you explained, how does a tablet know where to go in the, in the body? But my question is as well, I mean, like a tablet that you take for erectile dysfunction, where, how does it know where to go? There's no pain there. Hi, Gary. Well, the answer is the tablet doesn't know where it needs to go. It goes everywhere. But the way these tablets work, and let's take aspirin as an example. Um, Aspirin, also an aphrodisiac because it cures headaches. And um, kids, if you didn't get that, ask your parents. They'll explain. Uh, There's a well-known joke, actually, that this bloke uh, knocks his wife on the shoulder and she says, what? And he says, have this aspirin. And she says, why? And he says, for your headache. And she says, I don't have a headache. And he says, great, let's have sex. But (laughs) how does the aspirin know where the headache is? It doesn't. You pop a pill. And the painkiller gets absorbed through your stomach, through your small intestine, depending on what the drug is, and it goes into your bloodstream. It goes everywhere in your body. But where you have pain and an achy joint or a headache, this is because in that part of the body, the process of inflammation has kicked in. Inflammation is where you release chemicals that then start to pick up and act on other chemicals locally, modify them and produce substances that attract the immune system. So if you take a drug that happens to be in the area and when that process starts to happen, the drug stops it, you can't make any of the inflammatory substances that would then recruit the immune system and and make your nerves say, this hurts. So it doesn't hurt. And it's the same with erectile dysfunction or anything else like that. These are what are called vasoactive compounds. They work on blood vessels. So they'll go everywhere in the body within limits. There are some tissues that are off limits to drugs. The brain, for example, is a special site that has a barrier that keeps things out. There are other parts of the body that do that too. But drugs will go everywhere, but they will only work on 
a thing they're programmed to target that's the right shape, the right size and present in the right amount for the drug to bind on and modify its behaviour in some way. So that's how drugs are selective. It's not that we program them to go to a certain place, it's that they access almost all areas, but that the thing that they're targeting is itself restricted to a certain area and so you only get the effect of the drug, hopefully, in that one area. We have a voice note in. Let's take a listen. Fireworks on Mars. Hi, good morning. So last week as I was watching the Formula One and Sergio Perez crossed the line to win the Grand Prix, there was a huge fireworks display and it got me thinking, would fireworks work on Mars? How would it look? It's Lucien here from Richwood. Interesting question. The answer is that fireworks almost certainly would work on Mars, assuming you could get them to ignite in the first place. And this is because the chemical reactions in fireworks are designed using various chemicals that when burned or combusted, release all of the things they need to burn. They'll produce oxygen. You often have chlorates as one of the things in fireworks. And as they decompose in the high temperature of the firework, they produce oxygen. And this is what's fed into the fuel, usually a carbon and a sulfur and some other stuff, which then burns at high temperature, releases more energy, which then accelerates the process and also excites the other salts and chemicals that are there to give the pretty colours. So I would say it's certain that most types of fireworks almost certainly would work on Mars. The gravity of Mars is a bit lower, so the fireworks would probably go higher. The atmosphere is very, very thin on Mars, so there'd be much less air resistance, so there would be less to slow down the ascent of of a firework as well. So I think probably you get an even more dramatic display on Mars than you would on the Earth. Okay, we've got another voice note in. Um, uh, It's about what food causes inflammation. Let's take a listen. Hi, good morning, Clarence. Great show as always. Could you please ask the prof what causes inflammation, what foods causes inflammation if you don't want to take a cortisone injection? Thank you for that question. Well, food is something that we absolutely depend on. Obviously, if we don't eat, we don't live because food is the way that raw materials and energy get into the body. And for the majority of people on Earth, food is fine. And the immune system is programmed from a very early age that food is a friend and you shouldn't respond or react to it. We're not sure exactly how that programming happens, but it starts at a really young age and we have various mechanisms that tell our immune system this is fine, regard it not as a foe, versus there are other things that come into our body like microorganisms, viruses, other infecting agents, regard those as unfriendly. But in some people, and luckily they're rare, it's very few, there are immunological disasters where the immune system mistakes something friendly in food as a foe. A really good example of this is celiac disease. And in fact, you talked about the island of Ireland earlier in the programme. Ireland has one of the hotspots for people having celiac disease. There's a region of Ireland called Galway, and people who come from Galway are more likely, on average, to carry a particular genetic configuration that means they're more likely to develop celiac disease. Celiac disease is where the lining of the small intestine, which normally is thrown into this extremely dense series of ridges and furrows that give it a massive surface area, those are called villi, those get pruned off because one component, which is the gluten, which is in some cereal crops, is regarded by the immune system as hostile. It causes relentless inflammation, which damages the lining of the intestines. So that's one very good common-ish example of how a food can be regarded as hostile by the immune system and will cause inflammation and cause damage to the body. But most foods don't do that and our bodies are really very good at interrupting and stopping the passage of anything that would be bad getting into you from what you eat. And 
In fact, people have learned in recent years that the microorganisms that live along the intestine do that for us. We inherit certain microorganisms, and if you live in certain parts of the earth, you're more likely to carry certain bacteria that will digest and break down toxic things before they get near you so that you're protected, not by the lining of your gut, but what, what lives on the lining of your gut. So your microbes are some of your best friends. Okay, I think this is uh, a question obviously inspired by load shedding, which is our reality uh, in South Africa. Nikola Tesla, he uh, suggested that Earth is a magnetic generator spinning around two poles with uh, potential to generate limitless energy back in 1905. Why, why isn't this kind of technology happening? Well, it is in the sense that because the Earth has a molten and a solid iron core and the Earth is spinning, then you, you are effectively creating what's called a geodynamo and this spinning current, if you move a current, you get a, because it's a changing um, field, you will get a magnetic field and that's what gives the Earth its magnetism. The Earth has a, a, the equivalent of a giant bar magnet sitting inside it which goes from north to south, which is why we've got this field that comes out of the North Pole, goes down towards the South Pole. Were it not for our magnetic field, then we would be like Mars because the magnetic field deflects away like a giant shield the solar wind, which is this million mile an hour maelstrom of charged particles and radiation ripping past the earth from the sun every second and were it not being deflected by our magnetic shield it would be hitting the outer vestiges of our atmosphere and it would be pruning it away and over time and given enough time the earth would lose much of its atmosphere and then it would become dried out and like a like a husk like mars so this is going on what we can't do is to use this usefully to tap into it. People have postulated and said, well, look, if there's this massive magnetic field around the Earth out in space, why don't we just have a big long wire which will go from the Earth's surface out into space and then as the Earth turns, it'll be turning this magnetic field or you have a satellite on one end of a wire, satellite on another. With them around the Earth, they'd be moving through a magnetic field and hey, presto, you've generated electricity. Unfortunately, it's not going to work because if you complete the circuit and you have a wire which is going to go to carry the current back the other way, then you've got two wires which are with current flowing in opposite directions to each other or the current will be induced in opposite directions in the two wires and cancel itself out. So great idea, but not going to happen. Fundamentally flawed, then. Fundamentally flawed. OK, let's go to Neil in Somerset West with a question. Hi, good morning, Chris. I'm currently recovering from septic arthritis. So for the listeners, that's a pretty horrific and very painful condition that I've never heard of. It would appear that I contracted Staphylococcus bacteria, but I'm puzzled as to how it got into my system because I didn't have any cuts or anything for it to enter. Any ideas? Hi, no, I'm very, very sorry to hear that, but what I am reassured by is that you're talking to me and you're here and you're healthy again because um, this can be a really okay. serious situation. The, the commonest cause of aseptic arthritis, which is, as you say, where bacteria usually from the skin get into the joint space and they go for big joints it'll be shoulders elbows knees ankles which which was it in you uh <laughs> the knee on my left leg and my the bridge of my foot on the right right so both two si legs right yeah. two sites at the same time now what that tells you is that yeah. the, the route that they got in through unless you had a massive car accident loads of trauma and penetrating wounds the most likely thing is that it got into the blood and from the blood it went to those joint sites now you don't say if you've got any other underlying health problems that mean you might be a bit immunosuppressed or something but that's also a risk factor no. but no. but no. in people who have any breach in the skin because we carry staphylococcus on us and in us quite frequently and we 
encounter it quite often from other people. This is just a common bacterium, but it can be aggressive if it gets into the wrong place. The skin's an excellent defence. It's a barrier that keeps most things out and the right things in. But if you breach that barrier, sometimes, and, and I've actually had a patient who I know of who died because of a mosquito bite that they sustained while chainsawing logs in a garden, and that mosquito bite became infected and they then got a rip-roaring um, bacterial infection. It wasn't Staphylococcus on that occasion, it was a, a relative, different gram-positive bacterium, but it can happen. So what probably happened in yourself, speculating here, but what probably happened is some breach in the skin somewhere lets this microorganism in, which you might carry, as you know many people do, naturally as part of your skin flora. It gets in, it travels then, what we call hematogenously, it goes around the bloodstream, and then from there gets into joints. Another possibility is that people who have the flu, sometimes off the back of the flu, because it can damage the lung tissue, get a, a super infection with a bacterium, and often off the back of flu, people get staph pneumonia. And when you get a pneumonia, because of the very close proximity of the lung surfaces with the blood, the bacteria can spill over into the bloodstream and go to other places in the body. So that's another possible route. But it goes via the bloodstream and then seeds itself into joints, which, because the immune system doesn't work as well in those sites, because they're supposed to be well away from where infection can get to, the infections can become quite bad before you get on top of them. But it's good that you did. It's good that you've been treated. If, if, you, if you hadn't been treated, you wouldn't be talking to me now. Thank you. Thank you, Neil Somerset West. Uh, hi, Dr. Smith. Apologies uh, if this question sounds stupid, but is there a safe amount of steroids uh, you can use without all the horrible side effects? Uh, anonymous with that question. Well, Anonymous, you don't say what sort of steroids you're referring to. Um, steroids come in a couple of flavors. They're all called glucocorticoid steroids. These are things like cortisol that your body makes naturally and prednisolone which is a drug that the doctor might give you but they do the same thing they have an immune depressing effect so we use them to control various diseases but they're also essential for life if your body doesn't make cortisol then you will die and you you will get a condition called addison's disease mm. but the other kind of steroids that people take which are more commonly familiar to people are the androgen steroids these uh, they, they work on various parts of the body they're your sex hormones, and when people want to bulk up, for example, or increase their strength, then they take testosterone or testosterone-like androgens. Testosterone is, is the male hormone, and it's why men look the way they do, talk and sound the way they do, and have the physical capabilities that they do because it has a boosting effect on the skeleton when you're developing it also has a, a strong growth effect on muscles so it makes you much chunkier and have stronger musculature which is why gym goers who want to do this may take it but there are many side effects of doing this one of them is it will shrink your testicles so that because they normally make testosterone if you start taking testosterone chemicals from outside the body then the the, the testicles say well if i'm not needed i might as well shrink and you end up with pea-sized gonads which is you know that's not attractive the other thing it does is to push up your blood pressure and so people can end up with hypertension and it changes how sweaty and oily your skin is, so it can cause quite disfiguring skin lesions as well. You get spots and things. So I'm not selling this as, a, as an ideal thing, am I? It's probably best to avoid it. Yeah, pea-sized gonads, for sure. Uh, let's go to Oliver in Durban for a question. <laughs> uh, good, good morning, guys. Um, my question is, does, is read, uh, reading lips part of speech development? The reason why I'm asking, I have two children. If I compare their development, uh, speech development, at the same age, my youngest was taught by teachers that were wearing masks. 
and he is far behind his sister at the same age. So my question, does reading lips Mm. Hi Oliver. One has to be careful when comparing individuals because individuals are individuals. Boys develop at different rates to girls. That's another thing that we must take into account. But stepping back from all of that, the question really you're asking is, is there an educational and a linguistic development impact of mask wearing? People are looking at this and the evidence is that there are social costs for young kids who have grown up during lockdowns where people have been forced to use or required to to use various measures, including face coverings. The use of facial expression, mouth movements, etc., is very, very important for young individuals to learn social skills, to learn speech, and to, to develop normally. And we are seeing people who do appear to be a bit behind in that regard, and it's one of the hidden costs that's only now latterly emerging of the sort of measures that we had to implement to control COVID. And uh, we're going to have to wrap it there, unfortunately. The Naked Scientist, uh, Dr. Chris Smith, of course, every Friday uh, at 9.30. Abundance of knowledge right here on Cape Talk. Babylon Berlin, die neue Staffel. Seid ihr bereit für den Sturm? Auf Unrecht folgt Recht. Auf Barbarei folgt Ordnung. Auf Schwäche folgt Stärke. Auf die neue Zeit! Nichts bleibt, wie es ist. Babylon Berlin, Staffel 4, ab 7. Oktober, exklusiv auf Sky.